0: Welcome to Truth Finder, where we seek crucial answers to critical questions about belief. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafal, and this is Truth Finder, the podcast. This is episode number four, where we are searching for a crucial answer to the critical question, why is there life instead of things? This is part three of episode number four. In part one, we clarify that there is life instead of things because of fine-tuning. Last time in part two, we looked at four explanations for fine-tuning and revealed how they all fail to provide a reasonable explanation. These poor explanations are the weak anthropic principle, the multiverse, chance, and physical necessity. Now, in part three, we will look at our final explanation for why there is fine-tuning, an intelligent architect. So, at this point, after going through everything we've gone through, many people would say all other possibilities are not probable or unreasonable. Therefore, it must be God. This is not a path I will chart, because having devoted as much time, effort, and research To debunk alternative hypotheses as I have, it would be very lazy to default to the remaining option and simply declare this is it. Sadly, I must admit that many Christians do resort to the explanation of God by default without ever thinking through the issue logically and with a scrutinizing eye. I wholly reject the response of just taking any explanation on faith because that is a bigger cop-out than nothing. Instead, an intelligent architect deserves as much thought, scrutiny, and effort as the rest. Indeed, as I will elaborate on, the objective proof will point us toward an explanation, but the subjective persuasion of that explanation will vary from person to person. Sir Fred Hoyle once declared that, quote I do not believe that any scientists who examine the evidence would fail to draw the inference that the laws of nuclear physics have been deliberately designed with regard to the consequences they produce inside stars. If this is so, then my apparently random quirks have become part of a deep-laid scheme. If not, then we are back again at a monstrous sequence of accidents, end quote. The same Fred Hoyle has claimed that the chances for life arising without an intelligent cause were 1 to 10 to the 40,000th power, which he wrote was, quote, insensibly different from zero, end quote. These odds are so astronomically high that Hoyle is telling us that a non-intelligent cause of life is impossible. Stephen Hawking said, quote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us, end quote. Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog wrote the following, quote, a bottom-up approach to cosmology either requires one to postulate an initial state of the universe that is carefully fine-tuned, as if prescribed by an outside agency, or it requires one to invoke the notion of eternal inflation, a mighty speculative notion to the generation of many different universes, which prevents one from predicting what a typical observer would see. End quote. Albert Einstein once wrote that, quote, "...the harmony of natural law reveals an intelligence of such superiority that, compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection." End quote. Nobel Prize winner and physicist Steven Weinberg went as far to say that, quote, "...it seems to me that if the word God is to be of any use... It should be taken to mean an interested God, a creator and lawgiver, who established not only the laws of nature and the universe, but also standards of good and evil, some personality that is concerned with our actions, something in short that is appropriate for us to worship, End Why are all these great minds of science so impressed? Because nothing known to human beings is capable of fine-tuning the conditions of the universe that make life possible other than an intelligent cause. Put another way, the intentional arrangement of the universe is precisely the type of effect we would expect from a superior intelligent cause. Of course, this arrangement is foreign to the parameters that are fine-tuned because fine-tuning is contingent. In other words, something has to turn the dial to set something just right. To paraphrase Immanuel Kant, the degree of order in the universe compels us so that our thoughts are lost in a speechless and eloquent astonishment. All over the universe, we see a chain of effects that leads us to a transcendental author who is an irresistible conviction. When we consider the cumulative fine-tuning of the universe, it becomes clear that in some sense the universe must have known we were coming. The sheer number of variables fine-tuned to very narrow ranges imparts an overwhelming impression of intention. But an objection arises immediately to this statement. If the universe was built for life, the architect may be smart but is also terribly inefficient. That is, there are vast reaches of the universe that are life-prohibiting. For instance, in many areas, temperatures would incinerate us and radiation would poison us. Would it not make more sense to inquire as to why the architect built a universe overwhelmingly adverse to life? Well the answer is, we could inquire as to why the architect built so much empty space that appears to be without reason, yet this still would not explain why the earth stands in the center of conspiring variables determined to permit life in the midst of an unsympathetic universe. Furthermore, because the wealth of evidence for fine-tuning leads us to intelligence, the burden of proof rests on the person who seeks to either deny order or assert that non-intelligence was the cause of fine-tuning. That is because this proposition defies uniform experience, which tells us that organized complexity seems only to be an effect of organized complexity, such as the factory, or the human mind. Consequently, after analyzing all the evidence for fine-tuning in the cosmos and making an inference from the parts back to a unified whole, we arrive at the reasonable conclusion of an intelligent architect. That is one who is capable of fine-tuning to create the infrastructure for life. This is not wishful thinking because in the same way the proponents of the multiverse need to reach outside the universe in order to find an explanation, an intelligent architect is reasonable after considerate evaluation of alternatives. Hence, this explanation merely concludes that fine tuning strongly supports the intelligent architect as more plausible over the weak anthropic principle, the multiverse, chance, and physical necessity. It is difficult, based exclusively on the evidence presented thus far, to make a leap from fine tuning to a specific deity unless one relies on a form of an ontological argument. So, we haven't conclusively arrived at a particular locale yet, but are building a pile of clues so that we can weigh the total evidence despite skepticism about individual parts. In an analogy used by Robin Collins, the evidence of the fine-tuning argument is much like fingerprints found on a gun. They are strong evidence that the defendant is guilty, or that an intelligent architect fine-tuned the universe, but one could not conclude from the fingerprints alone that the defendant is guilty. Subsequently, while the evidence of fine-tuning strongly supports theism over atheism, the question then becomes who Theos is. What is their explanation? In the latter half of Episode 3, I came to the logical conclusion that the causeless explanation of everything is at minimum necessary and at least eternal and self-existent. Of course, this entity can be more than these things, but is not less than these things. It now becomes clear that this causeless, self-existent, and eternal being also carries the moniker intelligent architect. It must be noted that an explanation for an intelligent architect will never truly be as complete as, for example, an explanation of how liquid water turns into steam or how taking a selfie works. Our knowledge of the architect will never be complete, but this does not suggest that our knowledge is untrue. John Calvin once wrote, Finitum non capax infinity, which is Latin and means that the finite cannot grasp the infinite. It goes without saying that if a creature could fully explain the creator in intricate minute details, then the creator would have to retire. We understand less than 5% of the universe So in the same way that our scientific understanding of the universe is not complete, this partial comprehension neither devalues nor discredits the sciences. The point is that incomplete understanding does not mean we have insufficient comprehension for reasonable working knowledge. So can we make a connection that identifies the architect as God? Of all the world's religions, which God is it? Well, in the same way that we objectively came to the conclusion of an intelligent architect, the first thing we have to settle upon is that God must actually have real value and is not merely an expression of subjective emotions. So, God must truly exist outside of the self and is independent of personal opinion. This means that all of the skepticism and all of the personal feelings of the entire world would have no bearing on him whatsoever. As R.C. Sproul has written, quote, If God does not exist objectively, then all our faith or feeling does not have the faith to conjure him up. Quote. How then could we objectively know God in order to positively identify the intelligent architect? This is where Immanuel Kant becomes very helpful. In his most famous work, Critique of Pure Reason, Kant argued that knowledge in general comes both from sense experience like love and from external non-experience like time. So we can know things as they appear to us in the phenomenal world. In contrast, the noumenal world is the world as it really is. So, in the phenomenal world, we can see, hear, feel, and touch another person, but we are totally incapable of sensing their soul. Their soul exists in the noumenal realm. Kant's conclusion was that we cannot realistically know anything beyond the observable world because such metaphysical realities are strictly unknowable. In other words, Kant made the assertion that through science, we cannot travel from the phenomenal world to the noumenal. And guess what? Kant was absolutely, positively, and wonderfully right he was right because anyone can say anything about the noumenal world and there is no way to substantiate it. He was right in that most religious systems do in fact rely on personal projection of felt needs into the noumenal world so there is no way to objectively verify truth claims. What Kant did not entertain, however, is if a bridge existed between the noumenal world and the phenomenal world. This bridge or a mediator would span both realms and allow us to sense the noumenal world in the phenomenal one. This would also raise our consciousness and awaken us to those invisible or noumenal attributes of a divine intelligent architect that could have been made clear in the phenomenal world. Does such a bridge exist? Yes, and he is the only religious figure that claims to be both fully God and fully man, the exclusive mediator between the supernatural realm and the natural one. This figure is Jesus Christ. But how can we objectively know Jesus is real? And the answer is simple. You have to use your senses. Whenever a scrupulous Christian refers to the Bible, they reference a historical document that records the eyewitness testimony of real historical figures that experienced certain things in real life and then wrote about it. So, even if you are a skeptic of the Bible and don't initially believe that what was recorded was inspired by God, what you still have in front of you is a book with real historical legitimacy, and a plethora of modern scholarship and archaeology testifies to this fact. That is, scholars, even secular ones, have used objective rules of historicity to establish the reliability of the biblical documents. But so what? So what if the Bible claims to be a word from God? Doesn't the Quran and the Book of Mormon claim the same thing? Yes, they do. Other books claim to be from God and those claims may have some historical legitimacy. The question now becomes what are the value of those claims? That is, did a presupposed God ever demonstrate with real evidence that He is in fact God? Did he ever interact in the phenomenal realm in ways that qualify him as an intelligent architect? The answer is yes, and we find a host of such examples only in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, we also find real everyday people doubting that it really was God talking to them or doing something. They needed some form of verification that they were dealing with the real thing. Certainly, there is a legacy of skepticism about God really being God from the very beginning of the Bible. For example, when Moses, who was well-educated in the finest Egyptian schools of his day, when Moses meets God at the burning bush, one of the first questions he asks God is, how will the people believe that I actually spoke to God? God responds by changing his staff into a serpent. When Moses then goes into Egypt in order to rescue the Israelites from bondage, God proves that he is God by using his supernatural abilities to bring about 10 plagues. These plagues were not merely for show. They all demonstrated God's power over matter, space, and life itself. Hence, God did not merely say, just have faith or it must be me. He proved he was God by acting like God. Throughout the Old Testament, God worked through pre-Christ servants to accomplish miraculous feats and he also demonstrated exactly the type of things we would expect an intelligent architect to do, such as stopping the sun and moon in the sky for 24 hours and changing the laws of nature so that iron floats. We expect these things because an architect who built the universe can therefore stop, alter, suspend, and change the laws of nature. Later on in the New Testament, Nicodemus expresses this realization when he tells Jesus that only God can do such things. Nicodemus was acutely aware that God makes a legitimate case by showing us exactly who he is in the natural order. This has its peak expression in Jesus, the one who was fully God and fully man and dwelt among us for decades, so that people could experience God. This helps to partially explain why Jesus performed miracles in the first place, like resurrecting people from the dead, demonstrating power over life, walking on water, or demonstrating power over natural laws, and feeding multitudes, demonstrating power over matter. All of this authenticated who Jesus really was. It is from this posture that the eyewitnesses of the New Testament professed their faith in Christ and wrote their corresponding books. After all, the idea of a God-man called Jesus did not appear in their minds out of nothing. So, neutral researchers can verify the historicity of biblical accounts. They cannot either verify or falsify the unique supernatural claims of the events. This originates from the mere fact that we are dealing with history, yet this realization never invalidates the content of said history. As an analogous example, it is impossible to verify that in the Battle of Thermopylae in ancient Greece around 480 AD, that the Persian army had 100,000 men versus 1 million. This recognition does not invalidate the fact that the battle happened. Consequently, the biblical narrative is comprised of the eyewitness testimonies of multiple people across oceans of time and geographic locales, all writing about a coherent, unified subject. In the case of the New Testament, what we even have are multiple eyewitnesses of the same events, and they subsequently wrote about them from different perspectives. And these writers all lived within the same generation. If a person were to reject reliable eyewitness testimony as a reasonable means of evaluating history, then we are forced to essentially reject all of human history, less perhaps the field of archaeology. So, in a nutshell, once the Bible is confirmed to be historically reliable, which it is, we can then observe that it attests to the legitimacy of Christ who proved who he was by acting like God and who in turn validated the Bible itself as a direct revelation from God. The Bible in turn anticipated Jesus hundreds of years in advance and testified to his character and person. So why did I go through all of that and what does this have to do with the intelligent architect? Because the Bible not only explains that God is the intelligent architect, but it also explains how God did it. As we have learned in this episode, there is a fingerprint of fine-tuning in the cosmos that points to an intelligent architect. Consider these verses that detail God in creation acting as such. Psalm 19 says, "...the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands." Psalm 8.4 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Psalm 104.19 says, He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. This confirms what we learned in part one about how the moon plays a role in our seasons. Now, how did God accomplish these feats? by the clearest expression of an orderly, intellectual, organizing principle by which the foundation of the universe was organized, and that is the Logos. At the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The term word is translated from the Greek logos, which generally speaking means reason, motive, or computation. John used it to refer to a divine expression. Logos had dual meanings for the immediate audience that received it. For the Greeks, Logos meant not only spoken words, but also unspoken words in the mind. When they applied this term to the cosmos, it meant the rational principle that governed everything, like a theory of everything. The Jews used Logos as a way of referring to God. So, as John uses it, the term Logos was meaningful to the Jews and the Gentiles. Furthermore, Greek philosophy had long used the term logos to refer to an immaterial force that created harmony and order in the universe. So, as John says, all things came into being through the logos, as fine-tuning leads us, and John later identifies the logos with Christ, God made manifest in the flesh. It is no coincidence, then, that John goes on in the rest of his book To write about Jesus and describe all the things that he did and said, which validates him as God, the Logos, and the intelligent architect. And look at how powerful the Logos is. It's singular, unlikely to happen in the normal course of events, and is probable because it is based in history and is very simple. The intelligent architect or God therefore passes all three of our grading criteria mentioned in part two and is the best explanation for fine-tuning. Furthermore, the Logos explains, in contrast to naturalistic explanations for fine-tuning, why intelligence is not native to matter. It explains why, for example, a person's mind, Consciousness and reason cannot be reduced to elements and neurochemical events in the brain because there is a distinction between matter and mind and between physical substance and immaterial logic made by the Logos. Now, at the end, it is here from this informed posture that a reasonable person can take a look at all the evidence in front of them, weigh all the objective data, and then say God is a plausible explanation for why there is fine-tuning in the universe. This reasonable conclusion does not come from merely discrediting alternatives, but by looking at what the Bible says about God thousands of years ago in a pre-scientific world. The identity of the intelligent architect, the God of the Bible, is validated based on empirical and historical evidence. So when an informed Christian says, the other alternatives are highly improbable and the most reasonable explanation is God, that is an answer which is very meaningful. But isn't there more to our world that warrants an explanation, like how life developed in the first place? The answer is yes. And in the next episode, we will take a look at Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. At the end of the day, no atheist can be intellectually fulfilled if they do not have an alternative to, in the beginning God. So, in the next episode, we will ascertain if Darwin's theory has any lasting value and if there is room to challenge the idea that blind forces facilitated the evolution of life. Until then, I'll see everyone in a few weeks. Take care and see you next time. For more valuable content, visit truthfinder.org.